Hi, I'm Carrie Adams and you're listening to Carrie's Corner. Here we talk to the movers and shakers, the drinkers, the dreamers, the people who make it happen in the liquor industry around the world. So, let's get sipping. Well, in 2014, Kobus Basson, who is the owner of Kleinazalza, announced that he had appointed Alistair Rimmer as the cellar master at Kleinazalza. And today, I'm privileged enough to be chatting to Alistair. Alistair, welcome to my corner on Biz News. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. It's great to chat to you again. Always great to chat to you. Well, we actually, I'll be dead honest with you guys. We're having a seconds away round two here because Alistair and I met up about 20 minutes ago. <laughs> we started our interview and the internet went boom. And so now we're starting all over again. So I'm going to ask you, we had such nice happy banter about your beginnings in Benoni. Uh, but for everybody, Alistair was born in Benoni. We've forgiven him that because he and Charlize Theron were both born in Benoni. Tell us, Alistair, from Benoni to world-class winemaker, how in the world did that happen? Yeah, it's a very, very long story. I'll try to keep it <laughs> short. But essentially, I, I was actually planning to study horticulture and looking at potentially going to Peter Maritzburg. You know, I, obviously, I grew up in an English-speaking family, obviously picked up a bit of Afrikaans at school, but nothing really that would allow me to study in, in Afrikaans. And uh, by chance, I was in Stellenbosch, my parents had bought a property in the Cape and were visiting architects in Stellenbosch. And I was bored and lazy and went and had a look at the campus because everyone told me how magic Stellenbosch University was and the campus was. And I should consider going there, even notwithstanding the language barrier at the time, so to speak. And I walked in to look to try to find the, it was in the, the winter holidays, and I tried to find the horticulture department. And I, I walked up the stairs of this building, which I believe to be the horticulture department. I ran into a which I now know to be a professor, but a grey-haired man, and asked where the where the horticulture department was, and he said he directed me to where they were. But he said, "Why are you, why are you going to visit the horticulture department? <laughs> Viticulture is much better." Oh, um, that must be Evan. Yeah, four years down the line, I walked into my first viticulture lecture, and there was Prof. Evan Archer, wow, uh, the one and only. And uh, yes, in that fifteen minutes, I chatted to him. He he talked about growing wine. And that was what viticulture was about, was growing wine. And it fascinated me, the concept. And I remember saying to him, I said, but this was as a 14 or 15-year-old standing on the stairs there, 15-year-old standing on the stairs, <laughs> saying, but you don't grow wine, you make wine. He said, oh, that's where you've got it wrong. And I think that concept of, of, of me thinking about horticulture and then wanting to think, well, then him inspiring me really, I suppose, to, to, to consider viticulture as a form of, of horticulture. And, yes. and very soon after arriving to Stellenbosch and realizing wine is what I love and what I want to do forever, I, I kind of thought, well, I don't know if I really want to stop at just growing the grapes. Uh, as key as that is to the whole process of making wine, I don't want to hand my grapes over to a winemaker. Oh, it's the same old boy. It's same old boy ego, you know. Absolutely. It's like you don't want you don't want anyone else to drive your Ferrari, do you? It's the Y chromosome. It's a, it's a, mm. it's a blessing and a curse. Mm. I'm interested that you wanted to do horticulture. Were you a gardener yeah. as a little boy? No, not at all. It just sort of, yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it, it's something that sort of fascinated me. It's something that's you know, that whole sort of thing. I thought about doing nature conservation. I, my whole family are business people. 
Yeah, yes. both my brother and my dad are MBAs. My mom has been in the business world and in property and, and various things, sales, and ran her own businesses. And, and I, I was never going to be that classic business person. If my mm. dad had had his druthers, I would have gone and been a CIA or something along those lines. Yes, can you imagine how boring that could have been? Well, you know, I know lots of my mates love it. And, you know, they have a great life doing what they enjoy doing. It was never going to be for me. And, and somewhere or other, I got to wine. And, and I've never looked back. If I'm perfectly honest, I don't think horticulture, I would have been that happy just sitting being a horticulturist. I think the, the, the crafting and, and, and getting something out of the vineyards to make something so diverse in the wine world appealed to me early on. And then 25 years later, mm-hmm. from making that decision to where I am now, it's, it's ever more intriguing and exciting today as it was in day one. It's always, it's interesting you say that because people say to me, Oh, you must drink a huge amount. I don't actually drink a huge amount. I love the art and craft of wine and winemaking. I love the fact, cause I'm a gardener. I love gardening as well, but I do love the art and craft that goes together with growing the vine. So you finished at Steli's and you worked at Overhaar, um, as your That's first correct. farmer. Yes. Mm, and right. there was also Augusta wine somewhere along the line there. There was Count Augusta, yeah. wasn't it? What happened to Count yeah. Augusta? Oh, I mean, uh, he, he was a lovely guy. I mean, he was a real character, you know, billionaire mm. playboys uh, as accurately as I can describe the man. <laughs> yes. and, and he loved having the farm there and he enjoyed it and it was great. And, you know, I left Augusta towards the end of 2003. And yes. He, he still owned the farm back then. I, I, I don't know if he just lost interest in it. I think it was a hobby for him. I know while mm. I was there, it was definitely more of a hobby for him. And we had a great team there, and it was quite successful in its own right. And yes. it's now Grand Provence, and they've gone on to do some really nice stuff there. Yes. But I think he may might have lost interest and got some other interests and sort of then decided to move on from it. So <laughs> I think he got lots of other interests, like young girls and things, young girls, fast cars. Yeah, I think those yeah. were his interests. <laughs> so in, in 2004, you pushed off and you decided mm. to go and explore the rest of the world. And you just mm. get gone at such amazing experience there. Tell us a few of the places that you went. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky. I've sort of touched base in most of the major centers, for lack of better words. And, um, you know, I, I've worked in Washington State. That's where I spent six months after leaving Augusta. Got down to New Zealand for a, a cellar rat season for four months there. I sort of, yeah, worked on the cellar floor at a, a big winery in the Mulgrew Valley called the Spy Valley. And then after that, I met someone there that was actually living in Spain, making wine in Spain. And they were just out visiting home uh, in New Zealand. So Kiwi winemaker. And I told her how much I'd love Spain. I traveled to Spain and tasted wines there in a stint between you know, leaving Wibachau and going to Augusta, I'd spent four months traveling Europe with a German wine journalist. Yes. And had fallen in love with some of the Spanish wines and discovered Priorat. This is in 2001. I visited Priorat and, and, and was amazed by some of the stuff that was coming out of there. And I told her how much I loved Spain. And she said, well, her boss has actually got a new project on the go and they might need a bit of a flying winemaker. Would I be interested? Mm-hmm. So in the end of four, I jetted off to Spain and went into a six-month contract uh, in a region called Gumia, yes. which is known for its monastrel, or we know as Mubed. Yes. And had a great time there, and I met an Australian 
winemaker, uh, Chris Ringland. Yes. He and I got on exceptionally well together, and he has a number of small high-end projects around the world, California, Spain, back in Australia. He's got numerous projects in Spain, and he and I got on extremely well, and I went and worked with him in Australia at the winery he was working at at the time, Rockford. Yes. Um, and he had his own labels uh, as well. And basically, off and on, I've worked for him while I, I was abroad. Other than two years where I worked at a place in California, I worked off and on for him for most of the time that I was out of South Africa, which was up until 2012. He was a sort of, in, in fact, still is in my head. Chris Ringland's a bit of mm-hmm. a cult. He's a bit of a got cult status for people like me. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Chris, Chris's wines embraced the, the meteoric rise of Parker wines. Yes. And, and his wines aren't all Parker wines, but Robert Parker anointed a number of his wines. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, you travel around with him in the U.S., you know, 12 years ago when we were selling our wines in the U.S., it was quite comical, you know, the cult-like following he had. Like, yes. It was like the dis- disciples kneeling at his feet. Kind <laughs> yes, that's like, what everybody dreams about. Mm. Yeah, and, and, you know, he, he, he just loves wine. And he's, he's one of the most astute tasters I ever worked with. And, and he was a wonderful guy to work for. And I really got a great grounding and a grasp of all sorts of wines. And, he loved tasting wines. Sunday lunches at his house when I was in Australia. You know, it would be nothing for us to open 10 or 12 bottles of wine. You'd Sounds a bit like my house. You'd taste them. Mm. Yeah, but you know, you'd taste them and you'd look at them and it was the excitement of looking and contrasting. And So I, I developed a lot of experience there with him and, and obviously I worked around. I spent six years in California working on his projects in California, in Australia, and then also I took across to Spain to help him out because I knew the lay of the land there with a couple of bottlings and things like that. And through that, I got a gig in Spain. And I was there for the best part of three years. Oh, what um, wonderful experience. Mm. Yeah, so I lived in Spain. But then, I mean, as much as I love Spain, I still adore Spain. And there's every now and again where I go, why am I not back at my little project in the middle of nowhere in Spain? Mm. I had a hankering to come home. I never left South Africa. My, my intention when I went traveling to get experience wasn't to leave. It was to go experience the world and my time at Augusta made me realize you know I, I was a very young winemaker new out of varsity with very little experience yes got this gig that I was just probably a bit underqualified for and yeah I was doing fairly well but I realized if I wanted to, to really be much better I'd have to go learn and, yes. and hone my craft yeah you come out of university with what I call a driver's license to make wine you, you've got a ticket that gives you the entry to the world of wine but yeah. There's so much more to learn. You've got to immerse yourself in it. So I was immersing myself. Yeah. I didn't expect my immersive trip was going to last nearly 12 years. Um, <laughs> well, so it stood you back. in hugely good stead because you came home yeah. and you went to yeah, work yeah. at Darling Cellars, didn't you? Which is a huge yeah, seller. So exactly. I think you've got such diverse experience, Alistair, because you can use, mm. you know, you were in tiny little fabulous cult-like boutique sellers, you were in massive sellers overseas. So you came home and you could actually have gone and worked anywhere, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean, but I, I, the, why I came back to Darling was, I think it's some underrated sort of terroir. I mean, it mm. is an arm of the Swaziland. It's got a different aspect to the main valley of Swaziland, and, and there's some really cool stuff yeah. that comes out of that valley. Not just the Sauvignons that we all know about. You know, coming into the main valley, there's some beautiful old bush vine. Syrahs and Simsos and things yeah. that are now cool. But when I got back in 2012, the Swaziland was really getting popular. But people had forgotten that there was this corner of the Swaziland called Darling. Yes. And and I also, when I lived abroad, one of my greatest frustrations was I'd come home and see my old colleagues 
and realized how good our wines were getting. Yes. And they were getting a lot of critical acclaim. But we need to also start doing it on scale. Yes. Yet the Joe public wine drinker doesn't get to these really small high-end producers worldwide. I mean, if you think of the the top Burgundies and the top Californian wines and the top Australian wines, very few people get to experience the Mm. very, very Mm. top cultish sort of wine. And that band below it is what really establishes the image and the brand of a wine. And I wanted to work at a place that had enough scale to be able to produce great wines and not micro-volumes. Yeah. And it is achievable. It's, it's absolutely 100%. You know, I like any successful country, the success of a successful country, I believe, comes from its middle class. And it's exactly the same in our wine industry. There is a middle class that we need to be able to send out to the rest of the world. We need to have enough of it to get to every corner of South Africa and likewise every corner of the world. But it's not so easy to produce millions of litres of really, really high-quality wine. But you can do it. Yeah, we're working on it, Gary. I mean, <laughs> we, we do a lot of wine. Um, mm. But, yeah, we're really looking at, at ways and means to, to apply small winemaking philosophy on a larger scale. And, and it's that attention to detail. Yes. Yeah, we, yeah, uh, Andre van Rensburg, who I also worked with for a couple of vintages, yeah, used to make a funny comment. He said, yeah, the difference between a big wine and a small one is the size of the equipment. <laughs> and, 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 and if you look at it, it is, you know, smaller, smaller crushes, smaller presses, smaller tanks versus bigger ones going to the bigger wines. But the one thing that he, he, he glosses over generally at smaller wineries, you as a winemaker, and I, uh, that's from the vineyards through to, to the cellar and a, a finer wine. You're able to give more attention and focus on the detail. And, and we always say to our seller workers when we're doing training with them, we say, guys, you know, it's not the 99% that we're doing right. It's that last 1% that we have to do well as well. That is the difference between being you know, good and being very good or great. Yes. It's the difference between, you know, I hate to use this analogy because it doesn't hold too much weight to me, a silver medal and a gold medal. Yeah, I know, but it's true. And, and it's that, that those fine things because the, the world of wine at the moment is the best place for a consumer at the moment. There's so much good wine being produced worldwide. Mm. You have to, you have, it's those marginal gains that set you apart. And, you know, RJ and my winemaking team do all the hard work. Let making no mistake. They work their backsides off harvest yes. the year round. Yeah, making sure that everyone at all levels gets their attention to detail. So, yes, uh, some of our seller selection wines are a little bit more, yeah, user-friendly, but the amount of detail and effort that goes to crafting that wine, that the consumer at that level will get maximum pleasure from it, is as much effort, if not more effort, than it takes on some of our smaller, more high-end... 100%. uh, ...craft the bottom. I agree with you 100%. I think one of the... We'll get on to speak about um, you getting to Kleiner Zalza and what you're doing there. And you've got a very wide range of wine that mm. most people in South Africa must have at some stage tasted a Kleiner Zalza wine. I think the stamp of Alistair Rimmer for me, um, if I go back and taste your wines from wherever you've been since you came back to South Africa, mm. your wines are so balanced they are just so beautifully in balance. And I think that that for me, as I get older, balance and texture are the two things that I really, really look for in a wine. How do you achieve that balance? Don't have to give all your secrets away. Just your recipe. How do you get them so balanced? 
it's not too hard. I mean, funny enough, it was it, it was a lot with working with Chris. Um, yeah, he was making these these massive wines that appealed to the likes of Parker. Mm. But when I taste his wines when they were aged to a lot of other Parker wines, these wines never seem to fall apart. And and in talking to him, and he would talk about texture a lot. He'd talk about balance a lot. You know. And that's pretty much all Chris ever talked about. Even when we were tasting young wines, he'd never talk about fruit and aromatics in this. He would just say, texture and balance. Yeah, I suppose subconsciously looking at the fruit levels and flavors and complexity of a wine. But texture and balance. So I think it's through working through him, with him for so many years, that came through. I suppose it's like anything in life. Balance is, if you've got balance in anything, you're on the right track and can record with my winemakers, whenever we're tasting together and looking at new blends or evaluating a vintage, you know, you'll see my tasting notes. Oh, good balance, good mid, nice texture. Yeah, mine's exactly follow. the same. <laughs> a lot of, not necessarily just my winemakers, but a lot of other people, yeah, oh, it tastes like gooseberries and figs and asparagus and I don't know what else. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, that that's what it's. And so if you start out from the beginning thinking about balance and not trying to have any component out of whack, you know, I'm not anti-alcohol. I know there is a big movement saying high alcohol is out of balance. Again, you've got to be careful because alcohol is a component that can get out of balance very quickly. But just like if your alcohol isn't high enough, you know, there's a reason why certain regions in France capitalize a bit. You don't have that, that alcohol warmth to support some of the wine and they can be very thin and reedy. So every all those components need to find balance. Same thing with oak. I'm not a, a dogmatic about you mustn't use new oak. New oak is another. It can be quite an aromatic thing. It can bring a toasty vanilla and almond. All those oak characters can bring those. But those characters in a small component in the right wine can really lift the wine and bring balance to a wine that may have been out of balance. So, again, there, there is no recipe to it. It's about tasting a lot of wine and developing your own aesthetic, but understanding what components need to counterbalance each other to get that, that, that seesaw you know, leveled in the middle. Mm. It is. It's well. It is the recipe for success, as far as I'm concerned. I'm chatting to you largely today. You were brought to my attention because once again, Kleiner's also has cleaned up on a whole lot of awards and things. What is the award that you are most proud of? And I know you're going to say it's not you. What is the award that you and your team are most proud of? Because you don't brag ever. You don't brag enough, Alistair. Oh, yeah, Carrie. Again, I, I'm very thankful and grateful for the recognition we get from a lot of awards, you know, competitions and the like, and various journalists. We're very lucky and fortunate. We believe in the wines we make, so it's nice to have someone affirm our belief in the wines. It's, yeah, because sometimes you get a bit worried. You, you, know, you talk about cellar pellets. You put your blinkers on and you see your wines, and they like our children. Mm. And no, no parent thinks their children's ugly. <laughs> so we see beauty in our wines. Except me. And I thought my child looked like a little boiled Chinaman when he was born. <laughs> yeah. I was honest I, I'm enough. Said, I, don't have, I, I, don't, I don't have children, so I know some of my mates' <laughs> children looked like aliens when they were very poor. Jonathan looked like E.T., yeah. Yeah. If any of my mates are listening, they've all turned out to be beautiful young children. They are all beautiful, as are your wines. And I'm sure that some of your wines were E.T. when they first went into tank as well. Yeah, we talk about our wines going to the dark side. <laughs> and every now and again, they go to the dark side a little bit, but quite often they come back to us. And you've got to put them into OT, remedial sort of lessons and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Put them exactly, in. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Can you fix a wine that's gone over to the dark side? 
no, you can't make it come back, mm. but sometimes they come back on their own. Yes. Um, and so, again, coming back to the awards, yes. we don't make wines to win awards. We make wines that we believe in. If I'm sitting at a wine show, if I'm sitting you know, uh, with you, tasting a wine with you, saying this is a great wine, you know, please buy some of it to be a consumer or trade or whoever it might be. Think, yeah, I think this is cool wine. I think this is nice wine. I think it's balanced and we're what it should be. Yeah, you've got to believe in what you're doing. So while winning medals is a great affirmation of that, there's quite often wines that I make that I think are stunning wines that don't win a, a thing. They don't win a bronze medal on the Outer Mongolian wine show. <laughs> but I still believe in it because I still believe our principles of putting balance. I wouldn't have put it in the bottle if I didn't think it was good enough to serve around exactly. the table at home. Yeah. So I, I'm very, very chuffed with their recognition. But obviously last year and, and, and getting Platter's Winery of the Year was, was a, I think, a huge coup for us. Mm. You know, we fight that perception. People, a lot of people know us for the wines we make in large volume because they can get hold of them easier. And they're they so well priced. Your Kleiner Zotze mm. Chenin Blanc, you and Ken Forrester are my two go-to Chenin Blancs. They are so incredibly well priced. They punch way above their weight. They really are superb. Do all yeah, your so grapes that you bottle, do they all come from your property? No, Gary. I mean, I think when we move to our vineyard selection wines and our family reserve wines, we try and get a little bit more regional slash height specific. Yes. Um, and generally, we are proudly Stellenbosch, so we try and focus. The majority of the fruit we harvest in a year is out of the Stellenbosch area, but we, we're not dogmatically to that, especially on our seller selection wines. You know, there we want to reach out and get the best pockets we can at the best price points that we can put yes. together and give. You know, some of the consumers that are maybe entering the world of wine that aren't quite confident to spend a big chunk of their change on a fancy bottle of wine when they're still learning about it, to give them really honest, beautiful, clean, vibrant wines, balanced wines at, at honest price points. So we, we stretch the net a bit wider there. You know, Shannon's, we'll, we'll focus Stellenbosch and Achterperl moving into the Swartland. Mm. You know, that whole Paderberg, Malmesbury area, we get quite a bit of Shannon. Sauvignon Blanc, we send the net quite wide. All the stuff is in close proximity to the ocean, you know, yes. from Darling, Kukunar, Durbanville, all the way around to Elam, you know, and Elgin even, Stellenbosch. But again, and do you, do, you oversee, do you oversee some of those vineyards or do you just go and purchase the grapes? Do you pinpoint a site and then buy them up front? How do you do it? So those vineyards, the external vineyards that we purchase in, you know, it growers that farm them for us, but, but all our growers we've worked with for a number of years, all new growers that we take on, we take growers on that we work with. So yes. I've got a full-time viticulturist that travels and visits all our growers and oversees our own farming operations. Okay. And he makes sure through the whole growing cycle and over many years that the farmer works with us to try and achieve the results we are. So it's specific parcels for specific reasons. So even at a commercial level like seller selection, we're farming those vineyard blocks with, with a very specific goal to get a specific result. Mm. Yeah, and then that's what we purchase in. We then have 65 hectares on the property, on the estate, that we farm and grow ourselves. Mm. And we lease two farms in the Fora sub-district behind Mirlas, which yes. is very close to False Bay. It's some of the closest vineyards in Stellenbosch to False Bay. Yes. Uh, as the crow flies, they're less than three kilometers from False Bay. And there we lease two properties which span 120 hectares of vineyard. 
Ooh. that we farm ourselves. So Kleiner Zolza as an entity farms 185 hectares of fruit within the boundaries of Stellenbosch. That's absolutely so we a, It must be one of the biggest. Yeah, from a farming entity that actually farms and then makes the wine that's, you know, other than maybe the Ernie Else conglomerate now, maybe, you know, we are now the one of the bigger Definitely. wine producing and farming entities in the area. And, and, and it allows us to have a lot of control over a big portion of the fruit. Yeah, that's well over half our entire production comes from our own vineyard sources. Yes. And then we cherry-pick pockets from around the rest of the Western Cape. So you've got the best of both worlds. Kobus Basson has just been such an amazing visionary, really, hasn't he? We're very lucky to yeah, have Kobus, and we need another 250,000 Kobuses on the planet Earth to make these kind of things happen. If I were to say to you, you could farm and make wine anywhere in the whole wide world, what would your answer be? It's it's fairly straightforward. It's Stellenbosch. No, I mean, there there are a lot of cool places. I mean, I I could list half a dozen that I'd go to tomorrow that I would absolutely be over the moon to farm and grow. But, you know, I I didn't come from a wine background at all. Mm. And I fell in love with wine in Stellenbosch. Yeah, when my parents were coming down and I was a 14-year-old, this is pre-proper tasting rooms and things. I'd sit along and I'd sniff with them and they'd let me taste every now and again. There wasn't formal tasting rooms. And, and, and so this is where I, my first intrigue in wine was early. was your first yeah, love, hey? Your first love affair yeah, ever. Yeah, not quite. I wouldn't quite go Probably that far. You kissed a girl before you were 14. No, I hadn't. But That's I, a big I, admission I, I on, on public sort of platforms, Alistair. No, that doesn't bother me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm comfortable in my own skin. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, there was other things that I loved. I loved nature. I love, you know, like I said, I think I would have gone and been a nature conservationist if my father had even thought of, yeah, my dad and I thought about that a lot because when I was when I was much younger, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be a game ranger somewhere. Mm. I still love the bush dearly. Yes. But, you know, I once I fell in love, when I got to Stellenbosch University, I really, truly, completely became immersed in the world of wine. And mm. I, I, when Quibus initially then approached me to, to come to Kleiner Zolza, I thought a lot of homework and a lot of work to do and a lot of things to achieve in Dali. Mm. Uh, I'd only been there two years and it was a real, it tore me to, to, to leave a project that I'd started that I believed in so much yes. in the region of Darling and what we were doing up there. But it was my opportunity to come back to a place that I admired long before, you know, even coming back to South Africa. I had always used Kleiner Zolza as a bit of a benchmark and it was always one of those Places that I said, you know, if ever one day they come knocking, that's where I want to go. So when Quibus did come knocking, it was quite an exciting thing for me. And, and it, it, it was like coming home. I, I mean, well, how serendipitous. How serendipitous that Absolutely. it was your place of personal sort of favor and that Quibus mm-hmm. did actually home in on you as well. Sometimes those things are just marriages made in heaven. And yours definitely yeah, has been a marriage made in heaven. Um, you've been so good for Klenazalza, as it has been so good for you. You make a wide range of wines. Am I allowed to ask if you have a favorite grape variety? Yeah, you do. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm going to give you a straight answer. Um, <laughs> then give me today's no, I mean, answer. I'll ask you another time. No, you can give me another answer. No, I, I, it's something we don't do much of at Klenazalza. So it's a bit funny hearing me say it, but I, I, I love Grenache. Oh, I love uh, Grenache as Grenache, well. Both Grenache, Blanca and Noir. Yes. I particularly like Grenache Noir. I, I love the wines. They, they can be so varied. It's a, it's a real chameleon wherever you're at in the world. 
Yeah, obviously, I worked at it with quite a few in Spain. guys mm. in Spain, mm. funny enough, in, in America and in Australia. In the Barossa, there's a lot of great Grenache around South Australia and the Barossa specifically. And it's, uh, it's a great, I loved working with them. I love it because my communist heart tells me that it could give the masses a tiny glimpse. I always call it poor man's Pinot Noir. And it gives, it gives the masses a tiny glimpse of what Pinot Noir is, really. And sometimes Grenache is actually preferable to Pinot Noir because unless you can afford some of the really expensive Pinot Noirs, sometimes it's much better to buy a Grenache, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the poor man's Pinot is a very good description of Grenache, but I think it is a bit more than that. But it's exactly that. The great Pinots of the world have become so eye-wateringly expensive, mm. and they deserve it. They are truly great wines, and I'm, I'm happy for them. But, you know, again, it's 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 to the new consumer that doesn't want to fork out a big chunk of change yeah. for a bottle of Pinot, show them something else. And it, it, is, it also allows the general consumer to appreciate that lighter wines don't have to be regarded of lesser wines. No. Um, you know, it's something... That, that rings true on our philosophy, yeah. on our Cabernets. I mean, we're Stellenbosch. Cabernet, yeah, if you ask me our favorite grape variety out of what we do, yeah, yes. yeah, I'd be torn between Cabernet and Chenin. I was probably out of Stellenbosch be, be tending to lean to Cabernet because I think that the prospect of what Stellenbosch does with Cabernet is unique globally. Yes, I, I agree with you. South Africa. What South Africa does with Chenin is unique globally, but Stellenbosch has a very unique sort of perspective. But what we have done on our, our cabinets is we are evolving away from the big muscular intense mm, cabinets mm. to something that has more freshness, more elegance. It's still got the intensity of flavor, but doesn't have that heaviness. And, and, and working extensively with Grenache and varieties like that, that you can get that intensity with. Yes. Great Pinot Noir. Yeah. You can get that intensity with. Without having that weight. I think it's a more modern approach to Cabernet, which I think is, is gorgeous. But we do still need to have the big boys every now and again that sort of are such a big juicy bottle of wine that you honestly, honestly have to have a few of those in your cellar because you want sometimes that blockbuster cab and you're not going to get it from any other variety, I don't believe. Cabernet is king at the end of the day. We all know that, and we all bow sure, down to it, sure. and we pray to it every morning. But I'm with you. I think some of the Grenaches that we're getting are absolutely gorgeous, and we need to start preaching the gospel according to Grenache for a little bit in order to get more yeah, people absolutely. drinking red wine. Um, I think it's a great entry sure. red wine. Well, some of the Spanish wines of the world, those Grenaches from Spain on, are not really can't be considered entry level. <laughs> They're very much more than entry yeah. level. But I don't know anybody in South Africa who's making a blockbuster Grenaches yet, but there are some hugely delicious Grenaches. Absolutely there are. Mm. Yeah, so like I said, it's my favorite variety, just generally speaking. But you know, it's it's a bit of a flavor of the month. If you ask me next month, I'm just probably come up with some You're other variety. To do that. That. But you I'm, know, I'm boys are allowed to yeah. be fickle too. Not only women, boys can do it as well. Yeah. Alistair, anything new that we need to know that's coming out of Kleinerzalza that my listeners should know about? Anything sexy and exciting? I mean, you are all sexy and exciting, but something newish. Well, there's one thing that's we've literally just launched them at our cellar door on Monday or on Tuesday, because Monday was a public holiday, so it would have been yesterday. Mm -hmm. We've released uh, at cellar door. The new vintages of our entire range. First time ever that Kleinerzels has done it as a block 
of the new vintages of our family reserve wines. And they are the two 19 whites. So it's the 19 Sauvignon Blanc family reserve oh. and the 19 Chenin Blanc family reserve with the 17 family reserve Cabernet and the 17 family reserve Syrah. Oh. Or Shiraz. That sounds like and, a gorgeous um, bag to buy. Can, can my listeners buy online? Yeah, they can. They'll be on our, our online shop and coming to a shop near you shortly because we are, I'm about to, I'm heading up to Johannesburg and Pretoria in, in a week next week, in a week's time to do the official trade and media launch of those wow. wines. And so hopefully they'll be filtering through to the general stores, but online at Kleinazalza's website, kleinazalza.ca.ca. Fantastic. And the 19 vintage for whites was exceptional, and the 17 vintage for reds was also exceptional. Um, was arguably the finest and most complete vintage I've worked with anywhere in the world. Uh, and of the seven five-star wines that we got last year, in this year's Platters Guide, three of them were out of those four wines. The, the Shiraz got four and a half stars. Mm. Uh, the other three got five stars. So it's, it's a really amazing block of wines. No, it's just unbelievable. What you have achieved really reached a pinnacle at the end of last year, and you must be feeling so mm. comfortable I suppose it's never good to become comfortable in your own job. You need to sort of still, and I'm sure that you're not allowed to become comfortable for too long. Knowing no, I don't know, Carrie, about being comfortable. <laughs> it's almost got me less comfortable. It's before you were, you were trying to get to the top. Getting to the top's the easy part. Staying, Staying there. at the top's the hard part. <laughs> you are yeah. definitely going to go down in the annals of time as one of our best, best, best ever. <laughs> Alistair, it's been such a treat chatting to you. You really are one of the top winemakers in the world, I think. You have got such unbelievable experience. Your humility and your prowess are legendary. I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to taste your new family reserves. And just well done. Thank you so, so much. You're a very big part of the South African wine industry. Thanks for joining me on Carrie's Corner. Awesome. Thanks so much, Carrie. It was great chatting to you. And hopefully I'll see you in a week's time. I do hope so. 